0: Britain's most senior commander in Afghanistan tells us the future of the country is in the hands of its people.
1: All these naysayers can say what they say, but the plain fact is if you talk to the Afghan population, they are convinced that it's civil society which will change things.
0: The Supreme Court has ruled human rights do apply on the battlefield, and we go to Kenya, where the army is preparing for future conflicts after Afghanistan. Afghan forces now have complete control of Afghanistan. On Tuesday, the final 95 districts under NATO control were handed over. It means security for the whole of the country is being run by the Kabul government. A little earlier, I spoke to the UK's most senior officer in Afghanistan, Deputy Commander of the International Forces there, Lieutenant General Nick Carter, and asked him how this crucial milestone has been achieved. Well,
1: a lot of hard work by a lot of people who have helped develop Afghan capacity and importantly by the Afghans themselves who've very much stepped up to the plate in order to be able to get to this point.
0: Did you think it was possible when you started in your post back in October last year?
1: Well, I should perhaps tell you that I've had, this is my third tour in Afghanistan. I've spent nearly three years of my life here. And the answer is, of course, I think it's possible. As a regional commander in 2010 with responsibility for Helmand and Kandahar, one could see the burgeoning Afghan capability at that stage. And one was confident, I think, that by the end of 2014, they'd be able to absolutely stand on their own two feet.
0: Afghan forces now in control of the country's security. How confident are you that they will continue the work to the same standard as they have done with NATO? Um,
1: I think um, using terms like standard can be confusing to some people. The answer is that
0: uh, Why so? The
1: uh, the answer is that we military um, talk about the tactical level, which is the lower level, and I'm in no doubt that the 26 brigades in the Afghan army are absolutely capable of matching the insurgency, not being intimidated by it, and looking after the security of their population. Where work is needed is in the institutional development and some of the um, additional capabilities that they need over time, like air power and medical evacuation and those sorts of things. And, of course, on the logistic processes, and that's where work now needs to be conducted.
0: Uh, And, of course, also the the rate of casualties that the Afghan forces are taking are, are much higher than ISAF has done
1: you'd expect that because they are leading on combat operations now I and mean, if you look back to when I was a regional commander and you look at the comparable casualty rates that my 55,000 force took in RC South at that stage frankly there wasn't a great deal of difference with what we now find
0: How confident are you that um, the numbers that leave the Afghan forces particularly in the army will be that flow will be able to be stemmed because there are uh, there is a great problem in keeping people throughout the, the term of the year isn't there?
1: Uh, well, their contract is rather longer than a year, actually. I mean, the I mean in the
0: seasons, because you've you've on the record you've talked about people uh, perhaps going back to their communities when the fighting eases off and they're not coming back after having leave.
1: What's needed for the conventional part of the Afghan army, which is, I suppose, about 180,000 of their 350,000 force, is a readiness system that means that um, they also get the opportunity to do some collective training and also to have some leave periods. And because of the nature of the challenge that they've been confronted with over the last year or two, they've not had the opportunity, really, to get one of these things in place. I think that'll change, um, and I think that if we were having this conversation in a year's time, we'd be pretty confident that they would have put in place the sorts of systems that are necessary to make that happen. Um, And when that happens, I am in no doubt that their uh, manning rates will be much better than they are at the moment. And indeed, there are indications, if you look at this period, this um, high-intensity summer, that the um, manning rate is improving. But be in no doubt that when the harvest season comes in the spring, uh, people are inclined perhaps to stay at home and deal with that rather than come back to soldier.
0: Today's planned talks w- between America and the Taliban have been postponed after process from the Afghan government. Can anything worthwhile come from the talks?
1: Um, I mean, ultimately, the problems in Afghanistan are political problems, uh, and that means that people have to talk to each other. Um, and I'm quite sure that during the course of the next... Um, few months and we'll end up with a process where um, President Karzai's government is able to speak to all Afghans and to create some form of political participation.
0: When you have the kind of situation that has been reported over the last uh, 48 hours or so, uh, the diplomatics of rift between Hamid Karzai and the US and the things that have been said on, on each side, how does that affect activity on the ground? Does it give a boost to insurgents? Does it affect morale within the Afghan forces?
1: Um, at the end of the day, I think everybody recognises that you know politics are complicated and they're difficult. And that if you're going to get to a point where there is political participation for all Afghans, people have to take risks and people have to try and push the process forward.
0: We know Britain will have a training role post-2014 and other ISAF countries are taking responsibility for different regions. It's been hinted that Britain could have a, a role to play. What else are British forces going to be doing?
1: Well, at the moment, um, our politicians have made it very clear that after 2014, the big project that the UK will be involved in is the Afghan National Army Officers' Academy, and that's a significant um, institution which will make a big difference to the Afghan army. Um, and it's being built at the moment, and we've got a number of people committed to it. Uh, and I think that that will be something that will secure our um, our future here.
0: The forecasts post-14 are very varied depending on who's making them. From one point you hear from a military perspective about the progress with transition, which has now been confirmed with this week's news. And the commentators who've been to the country and perhaps said that um, they predict that there's a danger that the country may fall into civil war post-2014. What kind of situation do you see developing in Afghanistan, say, in five years' time?
1: Well, as I told you at the beginning of my interview, I've been associated with this country now for 12 years. And during the course of that 12-year period, this country's changed significantly. If you go back to the mid-'90s, there were probably no more than 600 schools. There are now some 37,000 educational establishments. There are some 200,000 teachers. There are probably 8 million children either in primary or secondary education, of which some 40% are female. There are some 70,000 Afghans in tertiary education. There's technology now, big time. Uh, 40% of Afghans are able to use a mobile telephone. Between 3 and 6 million Afghans will very shortly be connected to a broadband fibre-optic internet system which will ring the country. There was only 70 kilometres of paved road when I first got here in 2002. There are now 7,000 kilometres of paved road. There's a healthcare system which 65% of Afghans have access to. And actually Afghans now have serious expectations. 35% of them live in urban areas. And the reality of this is that it'll be civil society which will change things in Afghanistan and is changing things in Afghanistan. And ultimately, that will be what will determine the destiny of the country. So all these naysayers can say what they say, but the plain fact is, if you talk to the Afghan population, um, they are convinced that it's civil society which will change things.
0: That was Lieutenant General Nick Carter speaking to me earlier. Well, I'm joined now by BFBS reporter in Camp Bastion, Jeff Mead, and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Jeff, first of all, what did you make of what General Carter had to say there?
2: Well, I've been coming in here long enough to always hear that optimistic message from military leaders uh, right through the chain of command, so you tend to be a a little bit sceptical, but actually I think he's right this time, I think there are real important tangible changes, and when he was referring to civil society forming and taking a grip, um, we've seen evidence of that uh, here in Helmand only over the last two or three days. let me give you this example. There have been local elections in Nardali district, well known, of course, to the British military, scene of some of the fiercest fighting. Over the last three days, 6,000 voters turned out to make their marks in a ballot for the local council. Uh, only three years ago, the last time such an election was held, there were just 600 elders who were eligible and able to vote. So I think that does uh, suggest that what General Carter is saying is pretty well spot on. There is a sense in Afghanistan of growing prosperity prosperity. prosperity, a formation of civil society, and yes, perhaps if out of this diplomatic wrangling, some deal can be struck with the Taliban, because everybody, the dogs in the street know that the Taliban have to be part of any lasting peace solution, that there might be some grounds at long last for real optimism.
0: It's interesting, those figures, amazing. Uh, Do you get the feeling, though, that that people really have faith in creating democracy post-2014?
2: People were generally... When I was here uh, 18 months ago, there was still a good deal of scepticism and wariness about life post-ISAF. I think there is a feeling now that Afghanistan will be more able to stand on its own feet, notwithstanding all those reservations uh, about the military and their capability, uh, which the Taliban, of course, will seek to explore undoubtedly in the next 18 months. Uh, but, but it is cohesing. Um, you know, the, 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 the markets, the towns, the bazaars look and are much more prosperous. Uh, in Helmand itself, we heard General Carter talk about scores 178 schools uh, in this one province, 150,000 children, boys and girls, getting an education. That has to form a change. Things must be different, and I think the the, the movement is, the likelihood is that they will be better. It's early days. Let's not put you know put any uh, any hostages to fortune here. But I think there is a, a, a tangible sense that things are improving. But much depends on what happens in Qatar and whether these talks really get underway in the coming days and weeks.
0: On the subject of those talks, Christopher Lee, what do you make of this diplomatic spat between the US and Hamid Karzai?
3: Not much at the moment, because basically Karzai has always said that the talks must not take place in Qatar. The talks must take place in Afghanistan, so he's
0: remaining true to himself. He in is well. He has to re- he has
3: to do that because he's a, he's got his own constituency. What is particularly important is that the Taliban has now become also a political force. And if you go back through the uh, the history of Taliban, you can see that's what they've been aiming for for the past seven seven and a half Does years that, now. Does that
0: explain the, the, the nature of this emb- virtual embassy they seem to have been creating? In well, they
3: want this to be an international place where people would recognise that they've got a place outside. Of of Afghanistan, that they're not just a terrorist group, that they're a legitimate political group, where other people who want to talk to them. I would watch the way that these talks with the American officials and Taliban go in the next, maybe the next week. I would guess that we'll know which way, and the strength of the American persuasion, if we get an agreement between Taliban and the United States about the release of uh, prisoners, which they both hold either in. In Afghanistan itself, or in, up in the borders, and in Guantanamo, that 's the most significant thing. We now, we would then know that talks of some form are on the way, and don't forget you don't have peace talks with your friends.
0: Christopher, stay with us, Jeff Mead in Afghanistan, thank you.
4: Sit rep with. Kate
0: Still to come, more army job losses, but what's life really like for those who've taken redundancy? And we join Exercise Skari Thunder in Kenya, aiming to prepare soldiers for possible conflicts in years to come. The FBS a ruling by the Supreme Court has paved the way for families of soldiers killed on active duty to sue the Ministry of Defence for compensation. The case was brought by relatives of four servicemen who died in Iraq. Three were in lightly armoured Snatch Land Rovers, the other in a Challenger tank. The Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond, has said he's very concerned by the ruling. BFBS reporter Tim Cooper has spoken to legal commentator Joshua Rosenberg about the implications.
5: It's certainly a change in the law in the sense that it means that troops abroad can bring claims under the Human Rights Convention, under the European Convention on Human Rights. The convention says that states that are signed up to it, like the United Kingdom, must secure rights to everybody within their jurisdiction. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean within the United Kingdom? or does it mean people they have control over? Well, the court said it means people they have control over. Obviously, British government can command British troops anywhere in the world, and therefore, they are covered by the Human Rights Convention. How will this affect, do you think, commanders on the ground, and what are your thoughts about how the MOD will view this? I'm sure that the MOD are dismayed by this, because they think it will make things more difficult for commanders, and indeed for the MOD itself. I think the biggest burden is on the MOD because, of course, it's ministers and officials who provide resources for the military. We're talking about Snatch Land Rovers, we're talking about Challenger tanks, and how well troops, service personnel are equipped for the job that they have been given. And it's quite clear from this judgment that the military have to provide appropriate protection for soldiers. Of course, everybody in combat realises there is a risk, a risk of losing your life. But it's necessary, as a result of this judgement, for the military to diminish, to restrict that risk, as far as is reasonably possible. Of course there's going to be a risk, and of course you can't make battle safe. On the other hand, This judgment is saying to the MOD you can't allow battle to be unnecessarily dangerous, inappropriately dangerous, more dangerous than it is already by failing to provide the proper support and equipment for troops. This judgment raises more questions than I suppose it answers. One in particular is who decides what is the proper level of equipment? Um, A snatch land rover in one commander's eyes might be appropriate and another it might not. How is that going to be overcome? Courts will have to decide questions like these on a case by case basis. The Supreme Court is very conscious that it's difficult for any court to judge decisions that have to be taken by military commanders in the heat of battle. And they have said that when these questions are resolved by courts in the future, they will have to allow a pretty broad discretion two military commanders, but if there is a decision by a future court that not enough was done, more could have been done, then it's possible that compensation will be ordered. As far as these cases are concerned, um, they've not made any ruling. All they have done is given the go-ahead to the families and the troops involved to allow them to bring their case. They have refused to uh, accept the MOD's uh, argument that the cases should be struck out at this early stage before there's any argument over the detailed facts.
0: That was Joshua Rosenberg speaking to BFBS reporter Tim Cooper. Christopher, it does seem almost a contradiction in terms, doesn't it, saying that soldiers should have the right to life in war?
3: Yeah. This is not a game show, which sometimes you sit in the high court and you, you wonder if people have got a grasp of this. Let's take an example. They're talking about it should not be inappropriately dangerous. Now, you tell me about a war and inappropriate danger. You've got one guy who's got a gun. You've got another guy 100 yards away who's got a gun. One shoots the other one. The other one shoots the fellow before he falls to the ground. Which one had a government that was negligent and putting the other one in inappropriate danger. Now, that is a Mickey Mouse, sort of ladybird view of the whole thing. But that is what warfare is about. Um, Do not forget that we have gone into war with inappropriate dangers. We have gone into war with inappropriate equipment long before Snatch Land Rovers. Mm. I mean, if you want to, the Battle of Hastings, it starts there, and every major war since then, you could have got a high court judge who would have said this wasn't fair.
0: And in, ter- in terms of the legal side of things, this ruling this week is not the end of it, is no, it? No, it's
3: not. No, all this, damages all could this be is, turned down. Now, All this has done is a court has said that you can go ahead at the next stage. And I think that the law hasn't actually moved as far as we might have imagined it has.
0: Well, earlier this week, the Army sent out 4,500 redundancy notices in the latest stage of its huge restructuring programme. It's the third tranche of job cuts and the largest so far for the Army. Paul Osborne joins us now. He's made a radio documentary for BFPS about redundancy within the armed forces. Paul, tell us more.
6: It's not just the redundancies that we're we're hearing about now. It's the the tranche after tranche of redundancy, the SDSR, the future force plans. And and what we've been doing is just speaking to some of the people who have left the forces during this process. Um, We talk about them in the thousand and the support that there is or maybe isn't for them. And what we wanted to do was just talk about individuals because each of those individual people has their own story of how they've left the forces, how they've adjusted to a new life. In many cases, not something they had planned. Some of the people we spoke to said they planned to spend the rest of their life in the military, to, right up to retirement, and this came completely out of the blue. One of the spe- people we spoke to was uh, a man called Robin uh, Wilkinson, who was a flight lieutenant in the RAF.
1: I was scared. I pretty much when I, when I got called, I thought, this is it. But when you go in there, you know, the last bullet of a firing squad still hurts. It did shed a tear and it was just like, right, well, OK, this is the RAF saying your service is no longer required at this time. You do sit there and go, well, actually, why, why did I have to go?
6: Now, well, he's one of the people that we spoke to for this documentary, uh, three people who've left the services, one from the RAF, one the Navy, one from the Army, um, a mix of people who chose to leave and were forced to leave. One of the things that's interesting talking to these guys is that they go back to 2010 to the SDSR. They watched that announcement. They watched the news of all these redundancies. And one of the interesting things, the three people we spoke to, none of them thought it applied to them. They all thought, well, this is other people. Other people will go. I'm secure. And then they just started to get that inkling, well, maybe I'm not, actually. And in one case, one of the three people chose to leave. And, and he'd been on active deployment. He said he'd not only been in Afghanistan, he'd been in Iraq, he'd been in Kosovo. And he just said, you know what, I've had enough have actually had enough, and it's time to go.
0: And what are these people up to now? It varies. One's
6: starting their own business. One who was with the army in Germany has got a job out there with the NAFI, but has also said, what does he do when the drawdown in Germany is finished? He's not quite sure. He has to make another plan to come back. Um, another is looking at setting up his own business. What's in, one of the interesting things that's come out of this is there is a question over the extent of the support that's available, and how long it is. The Ministry of Defence has outsourced the resettlement programme to an external company which says it will provide support for another two years after you leave the forces. But once that two-year period is up, that kind of official support is pretty much done, and it's pretty much down to the voluntary sector.
0: Christopher, is that two-year period enough for people when they leave the forces, that support period that Paul's talking about?
3: Depends what the state of the economy is, is when they come out. We're living in, through, in a, an austerity economy. What is also true and sometimes forgotten is that the, is the military probably have a better support programme for people going out of the services than any other industry in the United Kingdom. That's
0: probably fair enough, though, isn't it? Uh,
3: yeah, it is fair enough. I'm not suggesting that's you know, anything, anything but that. But we should remember that the military... Um, actually sort of say, listen, we've got to help. But the suggestion is that we're not helping enough. The military isn't helping enough. And one of the reasons the military isn't helping enough is that, is that it's not a steady redundancy programme. And also, you don't know necessarily what you can do with accepted skills. And the accepted skills aren't, you know, were you in transport, were, were you in logistics, were you a communicator, or anything like that. You don't necessarily get, expect to get a job in what your particular particular branch was. And the other thing is there have always been redundancies. This is not a new thing. It's if People are just simply far more aware now the need to try and resettle people into a society
6: uh, which is uh, having a hard time itself.
0: So when can we hear this programme, Paul?
6: It'll be uh, a week on Sunday, uh, the 30th of June. It's part of um, Forces Life... And it'll be on BFBS Radio at 1400 UK time.
0: Okay, Paul, thanks.
4: This is BFBS. Sit, rap.
0: Every year, the army trains more than 8,000 soldiers through exercises. In Kenya, Exercise Askari Thunder is the biggest, training six infantry battle groups a year. Its key role is to provide a foundation, teaching troops traditional warfare and preparing them for the what-if scenario, which in the post-Afghanistan area will become increasingly important. BFBS's Ali Gibson reports from Kenya.
4: Soldiers advance into a series of six-foot-high mud trenches. After two years on public duties, this is a big change for 2PWRR. Crawling along the walls, they pretend to throw a grenade and then engage their enemy. Trench warfare may have its roots in older conflicts, but the technique is still practiced. Sergeant Lavelle Cadet.
1: You know, it's like drumming, an old arts. However, people still use the same rudiments to this day to make them the great drummers that they are. So with soldiering, we aim to put the basics together better to become complete soldiers.
4: Up in the archers post training area, the war in Afghanistan has made its mark. Fob Simba is where some troops are based, in rows of tents surrounded by hesco and barbed wire. But for the vast majority, this exercise is about being expeditionary and moving away from Op Herrick. Troops choose a piece of flat ground and make it home, keeping themselves and their equipment fit and ready to fight. For the commander of the British Army training unit in Kenya, Colonel Mark Christie, the benefits of Askari Thunder couldn't be more clear.
3: This
5: is without a shadow of doubt the best light role infantry battle group training I've ever seen anywhere. Every single soldier, officer I talk to after the exercise is finished will probably say the same quite a few of them won't say that during the exercise because it is pretty tough training here so it's a tough environment to exist in even before you throw in the sort of added complexities of an enemy and all that sort of thing two valleys join
6: at the bottom down here um, on this unnamed uh, route
4: Z Company received their evening mission. While training has been Afghanistan-focused in recent years, exercises like this aren't about the mission-specific. It's fighting for a war, not the war. And for the battalion's fire support company, that means going back to their roots. Officer Commanding Major Edward Reynolds.
2: It's not being diluted amongst the rifle companies. It's really uh, being used as a separate fire support group and going back to some of its more traditional functions, which, um, because of the nature of Afghanistan, have been slightly um, forgotten about. So, old-fashioned things, moving around, difficult terrain with heavy loads.
4: Askari Thunder is also replicating wider changes in defence, with more than 30 reservists from the TA, like Trooper Will Wright, deployed for the full six weeks.
2: To take six, seven weeks out and come away and train with the guys who are actually doing this, brings your training on as a TA soldier absolutely leaps and bounds. Uh, the only way you're going to get this experience is actually to come out here and actually do it. The training potential in this is absolutely
4: fantastic for us. Next year, 2PWRR will become the Theatre Reserve Battalion. It's a role they've held before, but their commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Ollie Stokes, knows they will have to adapt.
2: The TRB is about supporting transition in, in Afghanistan, but... The TRB has wider utility, and it's going to be located in Cyprus, which is highly strategically relevant. Uh, And, of course, the TRB could be employed on operations across the Middle East uh, and and North Africa, including providing training teams. So this training is absolutely about designing in those foundation skills uh, that will allow us to adapt to a challenge wherever it might be and in whatever theatre it might take us to.
4: For whatever comes next, the Army is preparing. Ali Gibson for BFBS in Kenya. Christopher, talking about whatever comes next, and we've, we've talked on this
0: programme before about potential causes of conflict in the future, and one of them being water. There's something brewing between Egypt and Ethiopia about that. Yeah. Tell us more.
3: You've got the, the, the greatest river in the world, I think, which is the Nile, and the Blue Nile. And the Ethiopians are building a dam, and there's this huge dam, um, and it's called the Great Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Uh, the Egyptians... Say, hang on, that's our source of fresh water. You ain't going to do it now. This goes backwards and forwards until,
0: even though it, it, this dam would not be anywhere near Egypt, it would affect Egypt. Oh yeah, wintered. because
3: it's the source of the water. I mean, it's turning off the tap or controlling the tap. And if they wanted to, they could turn off the tap completely. Now, the point being, nothing happens until you hear an overcut from uh, a television interview where they thought the mics were off, and there you have Egyptian ministers saying we can go to war on this. Mm. And Morsi, the Egyptian president, saying this is something which we can actually get really yeah, upset He said they
0: defend each drop of the Nile water with their blood, didn't he, at one That's stage? That's right. And it's a, I, mean, I mean, is it just a strong rhetoric, or, or, or is it something really that could become a flashpoint?
3: It could become a flashpoint, and it could become a flashpoint because neither country has the most brilliant relationship anyway. And this is a big, you know, this is a major problem. It's a, um, a three, four billion dollar Uh, problem anyway as far as Ethiopians are concerned and Egypt could come out the bum side of it as Egypt always does on these occasions and Morsi is saying we're not going to have this.
0: Does Egypt briefly have the right to demand as much water from the Nile as as it is doing because it's citing rights going way back isn't it?
3: Morsi knows his Israeli history and if you're a Palestinian for example or anybody else in that district you say how can the Israelis cut off the water from the Galilee he knows that in he knows what to do about it but it's it it I, I tell you what it is if you flash round the whole of the middle east at the moment from egypt from ethiopia sudan the maghreb right up to turkey you've got the whole of that middle east absolutely in flames over issues exactly that started off like this and a week later, people were saying, I wonder if they can go to war. And the next week, you're sending television crews and correspondents to cover the war.
0: Briefly, uh, Christopher, last week, we were talking about the uh, presidential elections in Iran. And it would seem that they've gone off peacefully and perhaps quite optimistically.
3: Yeah, optimistically. Uh, he's, he's quite a different guy, Abraham. He's, he, he, uh, he went off hill climbing the other day. Uh, now, you, I mean, <laughs> As you do. Well, as you do, excepting uh, I- you don't normally hear about that. We have lived now with a decade of Ahmadinejad who deliberately wound up everybody, including the the supreme uh, Ayatollah as well. At last, he says... I want to think about foreign relations as well as domestic relations. Everybody's got fingers crossed, but don't hold them for too long, because the major issues, such as what to do about nuclear weapons, etc., have not yet been resolved.
0: All right, and there we must leave it this week. My thanks to you, Christopher. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS rep. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash sitrep. Tim Cooper will be in for me this time next week, but for now, from me, Kate Thanks for listening. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye.